All right, well, good morning. Uh, very good to see all of our elementary age kids in the room. Church family, would you welcome the kids in the room today? It's a fifth Sunday, and I love seeing our kids in the room because uh, their teachers give them this notes thing, and I already saw my kids starting to fill it out. I think they get a prize or something, but I think it's awesome that our kids are in the room, that they're hearing the Word of God, and that they're even taking notes. And so may they be an example to those of us who are adults to do the same this morning as we uh, jump into God's Word. We're going to get into that text that Sandra read in just a moment, but I want us to begin our time together um, by reading aloud together this declaration that is going to be on the screen, okay? If you don't read it very loud, uh, we're gonna have to do it again. So it's good there, let's just wake up, let's read it together, it's on the screen, so please join me in reading this declaration. I was made for more than watching. I have a difference-making, life-giving, spirit-empowered legacy to leave as I proactively help people take one step closer to Jesus. Heavenly Father, I ask you to work deeply in me and clearly through me as I pray, proclaim, and persevere in your love. I am a disciple-maker. Well done, church family. Over the next two months, every single Sunday that we gather together, we are going to read that declaration. And my prayer for us as a church is that by the end of this two-month period, you won't just know that declaration, you won't just understand what it says, that you will believe those words with all of your hearts. Today, we are starting a sermon series called We Are Disciple Makers. And this idea is taken from one of the most important things that Jesus has ever given to us called the Great Commission. It happened right after his death, before he ascended into heaven. As he, before he went up, he gave his disciples these marching orders. And it's found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. It's going to be on the screen. Listen to these words from Jesus to you. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's pretty amazing. His resurrection, all authority is in his hands. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As we enter into a sermon series like this one, what we're going to find is that definitions are very important. Even with these words, disciple, discipleship, disciple making, we kind of all have these different ideas of, of what those things mean. And so I want to give you a very simple definition of disciple making that I'm going to use throughout this sermon series. It's going to be on the screen if you're taking a person, move one. Disciple-making is the process of helping a person move one step closer to Jesus. Disciple-making is the process of you as a Christ follower helping another person move one step closer to Jesus. As you read Matthew chapter 28, this great commission, uh, this involves both helping people who don't know Jesus to enter into a saving relationship with Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. That's what many of us call evangelism. It, it's an important part of disciple making, but it doesn't stop there because it also involves, as you look at Matthew 28, this idea of teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. 
And so it's, it's a step of knowing Jesus and then growing in our commitment and intimacy and surrender to Jesus until the time that we sit around his throne praising him forever. Many of you, no doubt, have grown up in church or maybe you've been in church for a while and you've heard these verses. I want to challenge you this morning. Please hear me. Do not check out this morning. It is a very dangerous thing anytime you come to God's word and think, well, I already know that. There's a writer that I was reading not long ago, and he said something that I believe is very essential, especially for those of you who have been in church for a while. He said these words, I am convinced that the gap holding back most believers is not the gap between what they know and what they don't know. It's the gap between what they know and what they are living. This next phrase is the one that stuck with me. Many Christians are educated beyond their obedience. What he's saying is the problem for most Christians is not the gap between what we don't know and what we we should know. No, it's what we know. We know the commandment of Jesus, but the gap is between what we're actually living. That's what he's getting at in this text. I think it's very important this morning when it comes to this idea of making disciples that we don't go with kind of the common cop-out, which is, well, Jesus wasn't really talking to me. He was talking to to Peter and James and John. He was talking to those first disciples. Maybe he was talking to to super spiritual Christians, but but I'm an introvert, right? We make excuses. I I have a full-time job. Um, Many of you are in elementary school. I'm too young. I don't know enough about the Bible. I'm not spiritually mature enough. I am a Christian, but I'm not a disciple maker. Friends, what we are going to see in this series is that there is nowhere in Scripture that creates two categories of Christians, a Christian and a disciple-maker. No, by definition, every follower of Jesus is called to be a disciple-maker. And that includes every single one of us in this room. We are disciple-makers. Today, I want us to begin with a very simple question as we start into this series, but it's an important one. That is this, why make disciples? It's the title of my sermon today, Why Make Disciples? Now, our answer could be as easy as looking at that question and saying, well, because Jesus told us to, and that would be right. That'd be the correct answer. Jesus did tell us to, and that's enough. But thankfully, the Bible has given us a a beautiful picture about why disciple-making is so important why it is the call upon every Christian's life. If you have a Bible, I want you to invite you to open it with me to that passage that Sandra read. It's found in the book of Colossians, and then you're gonna look for chapter one. If you didn't bring bring a Bible this morning, that's okay. There's Bibles in the pew in front of you. You can look in the table of contents, but the book of Colossians is found in the New Testament. And if you get to the T books, which are like Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, you've gone too far, okay? So just go back a little bit and you'll find the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians uh, written by the Apostle Paul, who, of course, was a persecutor of Christians that had his life dramatically changed by Jesus and ended up being a preacher, a pastor. And so he's writing this letter to new believers, helping them to understand what God has done for them. It's in this that we read, and I'm going us to focus on verses 13 and 14, if you'd look at that with me. It says, he, talking about God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
There may be times that you look at the world around you and you think, what is God doing? What could God be doing in this? I don't know of any more great summary of what God is doing in the world, even in this moment, than we find in this one verse. The primary work God is doing in the world right now is rescuing people from the domain of darkness and transferring them into the kingdom of his beloved son. That is the work that God is doing in the world around us. This is only one verse. There's a lot here. And so I want us to, to just slowly kind of break this down. Number one, we make disciples because people are trapped in darkness. Why do we make disciples? Because people are trapped in darkness. If you want to join Jesus in this incredible mission that he has given his church, it starts with seeing the world from his perspective, seeing it as he sees it. The scriptures consistently tell us that that apart from God, the, the world is entrenched in darkness. He reiterates this point in Ephesians 5 where he says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. I wonder this morning, have you ever been surrounded by darkness? I'm not talking you're in your bedroom with your nightlight on darkness, okay? Not even you're out camping under the stars darkness. I'm talking complete darkness. I thought I was good with darkness, that I didn't really mind darkness until one day me and a few friends when I was a teenager decided to go caving in a place called Devil's Den State Park, which is right outside of my hometown growing up. I was super excited about caving. I had heard about, they call it spelunking. I thought it would be a lot of fun. Some of my friends had gone before me. And so we rushed into the cave. And as we got in there, I thought it would be a good idea because I saw this little crevice that looked a little bit less traveled than the main route through the cave. I thought, I can explore this. And so I said, you guys go this way. I'm sure it meets up. I'm gonna go through this crevice. Thinking that I venture... uh, I felt very good about my courageous spirit until about five minutes into my adventure, uh, something major happened. See, I was a novice spelunker. I had never gone caving before, and I only brought one headlamp. That one headlamp, I hadn't even checked the battery on, okay? So I go into this crevice, and I'm going through the cave by myself, and all of a sudden, my light flickers, 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 gone. Now, if you've ever been in a cave... There is no darkness like the darkness of a cave. There's absolutely zero light. And so in this moment, I froze. Literally, I could not see the jagged rocks that would have been inches. I knew it was there because I had seen it a second ago. It were now inches in my face. I couldn't see them. I couldn't see if there was a drop off around me. And I'm just telling you, I panicked. I started screaming at the top of my lungs because I thought I am going to die in this cave all alone. And this is not how I thought I was going to go. Thankfully, Not long after that, I'm screaming, I'm screaming, help, help, I can't see, I can't go anywhere. I hear one of my friends laughing, and I see this little light beginning to come near me, and he rescued me that day, and I'm thankful for it. But when you think about this concept of darkness, when the Bible talks about darkness, what the point he's making is that the world we live in is not neutral territory. It's an important point. I think some of us kind of see our world as this neutral territory, but what he's saying is there is a constant spiritual battle that is going on around us. And from the beginning of time, you read the Bible, darkness has the connotation of evil. Why? Because God is always seen as light. Where there's an absence of God, there is darkness. There's destruction. There's death. 
There's a separation from God. And that's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about darkness. In another place, Paul describes the darkness of, of a life without God in this way. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in, whence, in, once you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What he's getting at in both of these places, this idea of domain of darkness, is that the world around us is not some bright, sunny place where good people just get along and live their lives while Christians are people who like going to church. What he's saying here is that every person in the world apart from Jesus is trapped in inescapable spiritual darkness. If they are not rescued, every person in the world faces eternal judgment and separation from God because of their sin. Now, I know even as I say that, some of you are, are bristling inside. Because for those of us who have grown up and had the privilege of living in a very prosperous Western culture, for many of us, we look at our world and we, it looks like there's a lot of light. You go to work with healthy, well-educated, peace-loving citizens. The people in your lives, they have lives full of, 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 of great, stimulating work. They have jobs that are incredible. They have families. They have caring friends. Their lives are filled with great restaurants here in the city of San Francisco. And all of this can easily look to us like light. When suffering does happen, when, when we see evil like when we've seen with these mass shootings or with sexual assault, when these things happen, we, we convince ourselves this is just a, a, a tiny abnormal glitch in the system. Programming will, will, will remain as normal. This light-filled view is small. It's not that big of a deal. Well, this light-filled view of the world, it, it's not what the Bible describes. In the book, the, the Vine Project, a very great book that really has been a, a, a stimulus for this sermon series, the author says this, the daily immersive exposure to a light-filled view of the world often changes our perception of what the Bible calls this present darkness. It's like the dimmer switch has been turned up. The darkness doesn't seem so dark and people don't seem so lost in it. I wonder how many of you, is that your perspective of the world around you? How many of you, is that the perspective of your neighborhood, of your coworkers, of your family and your friends? It's not so dark. It's not really that dark. It's the dimmer switch is a little bit up. And we forget, and the tragic result of that is a lack of urgency toward helping people move one step closer to Jesus. Paul, the, the writer of Colossians, he can't comprehend that. Paul could never forget the darkness from which he had been rescued. It's incredible. When he thinks about his life, he, he would say, I was a persecutor of Christians. I lived my life trying to, to be good enough. I was a religious performer going from this law to this law to this law to try to earn God's salvation. But then as I was on that road, as I was on that road to destruction, God stopped me in the tracks and he rescued me. 
Paul never forgot. And that's why he lived his life as he did, making disciples. I know many of you in this room are the same way. I've talked with a number of you, even in the last couple of weeks, where through tears you've told me about your journey of searching and searching for significance in life. You looked at it through, you looked at it for the, through the search of pleasure, or maybe your success or your ambition. Many of you went through many spiritual practices, looked even into other religions, looking for light only to find more darkness. But what did God do? He rescued you. He saved you. And now you cannot comprehend ever forgetting what he has done for you. But sadly, some of us in this room, the story, the power of our story of salvation, it's dimmed. You don't really see your life. You don't remember the darkness that you were in apart from Jesus. You don't remember what Jesus did for you. You don't remember that he rescued you. And the tragic result of that is you have very little care for the people around you who are st- still enslaved to darkness. There's something I've read to you before, but I think it's so fitting today. I could not, not read it. It's William Booth's famous work, A Vision of the Lost. And in A Vision of the Lost, he's trying to paint a picture of this spiritual darkness that the world is entrenched by. He says these words. I'm just going to read it. I saw a dark and stormy ocean. Over it, the black clouds hung heavily. Through them, every now and then, the vivid winds moaned. The waves rose and foam towered and broke. In that ocean, I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, then rose and shrieked again, and then some sank, and they rose no more. I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy seas. And all around the base of this great rock, I saw a vast platform. On this platform, I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches that had been brought out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were arched the place of safe platform were helping the poor creatures in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. On looking more closely, I found a small number of those who had been rescued, industriously working and scheming by ladders, by ropes, by boats, and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there, there were even those who actually jumped in the water, regardless of the consequences and their passion to rescue the perishing. But as I looked even closer, I saw that most of the occupants on that platform were quite a mixed company. That is, they were divided into different groups and they occupied themselves with different pleasures and employments. But only a few, very few of them seemed to make it their business to get people out of the sea. What puzzled me most was the fact that though all of them had been rescued at one time from the angry ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care about the poor, perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes. Many of them were their husbands and wives, 
brothers and sisters, and even their own children. Every time I read that paragraph, the picture of the darkness, of the seas, of the desperation, of the drowning, I am reminded afresh, we do not make disciples because we think Jesus is going to make someone happier. We do not make disciples because we think Jesus helps people to live a more well-balanced life. We don't make disciples because we think Jesus makes people a better version of themselves. We make disciples because without Jesus, people are perishing. They are separated from God. And if God does not rescue them, if they do not meet their rescuer, Jesus Christ, they will drown and come up no more. We make disciples because people need to be rescued. Which brings us to our second point, and it is an amazing truth that we find throughout the New Testament, and that is this. We make disciples because God is rescuing and transferring people into Jesus' kingdom. Colossians 1.13, again, he has delivered us from the domain. There is a king, and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There is a kingdom that even as I am speaking this morning is growing and pushing back the darkness. It is a kingdom characterized by all of the opposite of darkness. It's characterized by light, by the presence of God, by truth, by righteousness, by justice, by mercy, by love, by security, by joy, by peace. And on the throne of this kingdom is one and one alone. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate king, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Colossians 1 makes this very clear. Whether we acknowledge Jesus as king or not, he is king. Verse 15, it says these words, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be his king. It's one of the greatest passages in all of scripture. Jesus is king. All things were made by him, through him, and for him. Which means that every single one of us in this room, our lives only are held together when we place our lives under his cosmic kingship. The right question this morning is not, is Jesus king? Jesus is king. The right question is this, is Jesus your king? Are you part of his kingdom? You see, that's something that you can't accomplish on your own. You can't just say, okay, I'm going to be part of Jesus' kingdom, so I'm going to be really good. I'm going to do a lot of charity. I'm going to go to church a lot, and then I'm going to be part of Jesus' kingdom. No. We couldn't rescue ourselves from the darkness. But thankfully, Jesus, our king, came for us. Many of you will remember the story last year. There was a group of, of 12 boys in Thailand, their soccer coach, who got trapped in a cave. The world, you'll remember, was mesmerized by this story because everybody was wondering how in the world are these boys going to be rescued? There's no way in. There's no way out. There's hardly any way of getting to them. How are they going to come out of this alive? Do you remember how they got rescued eventually? 
Was it because they tried harder? No. Was it because they came up with some great plan and they followed these steps and and they rescued themselves? No. The way that they were rescued is that they, in essence, had to be drugged. (laughs) They had to entrust their lives entirely so that they couldn't move. They were immobilized so that one more qualified than them could transfer them from darkness to light. Do you realize that is what our King Jesus has done for us? We had no way of escape. We were in the darkness. We were in the waves. There was no way we were getting out. We can't swim. We aren't good enough. We can't do enough good things. But Jesus, our great king, came and he rescued us and he transferred us from death to life. You see, from the very beginning of time, from the moment sin entered into the world and this broken world became what it is, God initiated a plan to rescue us. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to do everything that was necessary to save us from our sin. He was the only one qualified. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was qualified, and because of that, his life could be shed on the cross for us. This is what verse 14 is getting at. If you look at it, it says, In whom, talking about Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Later down in verse 19, it says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I pray this news never gets old. Jesus has died for us. He took the punishment for our sin because he was qualified to do so. On the cross, he took that and then he raised from dead. And it's in Jesus, our king alone, that we can be taken from death to life, transferred from an eternity separated from God to an eternity around his throne. That word redemption was a, as a term in the New Testament that comes with a background of slavery. A slave had no rights. There was no way a slave could, could buy themselves. But if somebody would come and redeem them, if they would come and pay the ransom price, they would immediately be made free. And friends, that is what Jesus has done for us. But we have to trust him. We have to do what the boys in that cave did. They didn't say, no, no, I'm going to get out of this cave on my own. They said, no, I'm going to entrust all of my life into the hands of one who is more qualified than me to rescue me. And friends, that's what we do with Jesus. We say, Jesus, I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to entrust that your work on the cross, your resurrection is enough to bring me around your throne for eternity. It's enough to change my life in the present. It's this amazing truth, friends, that Jesus has done for us. And so my question for you this morning is, is this your story? You cannot be a disciple maker if you're not a disciple. Have you been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Is he your king? My prayer for you today is that if you've never done that, today would be the day you say, Jesus, I want you to be my king. I trust you with my life. I submit my life Totally, 100% into your hands. Would you please rescue me? I pray this morning that for some of you in this room, that's your step today. That you entrust yourselves to Jesus. 
But for many of you in this room who have already taken that step, you've been rescued from the domain of darkness. You've been transferred into Jesus's kingdom. Then here's my question for you. Are you joining Jesus in rescuing others? It starts with your heart. Sermon series, we're gonna talk about how to do that, what that looks like, but it starts with your heart. Jesus has invited you to be part of his cosmic rescue mission. Are you passionate about that mission? You know, I find it amazing. We as humans get passionate about rescuing the craziest kinds of things. Uh, In social media this week, I saw a video where this entire beach worked together to rescue, get this, a great white shark. Now, you'll see it on the screen. There's a picture of it. You see these crowds of people with the great right right in the middle. They work together to build a trench, to put ropes around this thing, and then together they hauled a great white shark back out to the ocean. It's an amazing video. They all cheered and happy. I couldn't help but think, you're excited about rescuing a killer whale that if given the chance is going to turn around and eat you. That's what I was thinking as I saw that video. But that's what we do. We get excited about rescuing cats from trees and turtles from plastic straws. Church, how much more excited should we be about rescuing the souls of 844,000 people that call San Francisco home? How much more excited should we be about joining together and working with one another to make disciples among the nations, telling people your great rescuer has already come and his name is Jesus Christ. We make disciples because this is the most exciting life that we could ever live. I'll tell you this, I think the invitation that Jesus has offered us is way more exciting and interesting than the life that most of you live on a weekly basis. I think I can say that pretty confidently. You look at the lives of the first disciples and you can say a lot about their lives, but one thing you could never say is that their life was boring. These individuals gave everything to make disciples because they had been rescued and they could not, they they would do whatever it took to help others to find the rescuer named Jesus Christ. I don't know what God is going to do in your life, but I do want you to hear a testimony of one of our church members who was rescued and then joined God in this rescue mission. Wilfred Selvaraj, if you'd come up. Wilfred has been a member of our church now for my goodness, probably eight years. And I've always been amazed with Wilfred's passion. And the reason for Wilfred's passion is because he knows that he was rescued. And so I want, I want Wilfred to share just how you were rescued and then what it looks like in joining Jesus in that mission. Thank you. I thank uh, Lord Jesus in front of God and my Savior for, for me standing here alive in front of each one of you and for bringing me to this nation. I want to share my journey of how God rescued me from darkness into light and how he met me just like Paul on the Damascus Road, the way the same manner Jesus met me on the streets of Chennai in my city in India. And I was born in a family of a Hindu Hindu father and a Christian mother, but we never practiced religion at home. So I never knew religion, it's a, uh, uh, but it's a very strange phenomenon because I was born in a country where the country of India is an extreme on everything. And, and, and uh, India has given birth to four major religions in this world. 
So there's a lot of religiosity, there's a lot of religion going on, there's a lot of philosophies, there's a lot more than one million gods being worshipped in my nation where I come from. But in all these things, I looked at the divide between the rich and the poor and the complex caste system that is still existing in my nation. And all these issues made me to question who God is and who am I and what I am doing in this nation and what I am doing in this place and where I am going. And I was questioning God and your, uh, 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 and your voice cried out, God is dead, God is dead, God is dead in the, in, in, in the, in the, in the country of France by Nietzsche. A lone voice cried out, which was such a powerful voice, and it hit me. It hit the shores of India. It also crept into me, and I decided, and I, and I proclaimed that there was no God. I became a total atheist when I was 12 years old, and I started my search for truth, and my search for why, why all these injustices are taking place, why there is a chasm between the rich and the poor, what's happening, why, why this injustice, and this truth from the age of 12, led me to a search and it led me on a journey. And this journey led me, the search spiraled me into an abyss of darkness, into an abyss of total, uh, 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 total depravity, of total insane madness. And this, uh, and this journey of mine spiraled into all these things. I was led uh, into Eastern philosophies into Darwinism, into Freudism, into rock music, and of course, alcohol and drugs and, uh, and, uh, and all the kind of lifestyle that comes along with it. And by the time I came to my university, I was left defeated. I was left purposeless. I was left hopeless. There was no purpose. There was no future. I was left everything devoid of anything else. And I came to the end of my life and I said, I want to commit suicide because there's no reason for me, there is no hope for me to live in this world among all these things that is taking place around me and I could not find an answer and nobody can lead me to the truth to the thing that I'm searching for in my life. And during my final year of, 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 my, of my university, I heard your voice, your voice that told me, Wilfred, you do not have hope. Take your life, there is no hope, there is no purpose for you. And that night I decided to commit suicide. So I wrote a letter and left it on my table and I started walking on the street. And of course in India, my city is so busy. There's so many traffic going around. And there I heard another voice. It says, you have hope. You have hope. And I stood in the middle of the street thinking whether I'm going mad because I've been hearing two voices, one voice which told me there is no hope and there's another voice that was so gentle and so soft and so different that I never heard and something in me spoke for you. There is a purpose for you and, and something in me pushed me to this church and the, and the voice said, step into this building and I stepped into that building and there was a meeting that was going on, an evangelistic meeting that was going on and there was a person from the Billy Graham crusade who was sharing the gospel. I never knew who he was. And on that day, I stood under a tree in the darkness because I never wanted to be exposed. I never wanted to be seen. I was standing right behind the conference that was taking place under a tree in the darkness and I was listening to this man. 
I never knew what scripture he spoke. I never knew what Bible portion he was talking, but he was talking to me and he said, there's a person here who's walked into this, into this meeting who has, who, who has not hope, who does not have any hope, and you're going to commit suicide, but the Lord Jesus has a message for you. There is a purpose for you. There is a meaning in your life. Step forward and give your life to Jesus. And that evening I stepped forward and I gave my life to Jesus. And that decision, the choice that I made has, 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 has brought me, has confronted me to the love of Christ and has, and has, and has helped me to embark me on a journey with them in, in, uh, from India. And once I received Jesus Christ, I, I, was, I was transferred from, from, the, from the kingdom of darkness into the light. And I met my Jesus. I met Jesus as my, I accepted him as my personal Lord and Savior. And I said, Lord, I'll give my life to you. And during that time, I, 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 I happened to join a mission organization, which I'm still a part of, which I'm still directing and leading here in San Francisco. And, uh, and the Lord asked me, he said, are you willing to follow me with all of your heart? I said, yes, Lord. Are you willing to give up your career that I, I, was, I was selfishly pursuing my career and I was, I, I, I was a selfish man pursuing everything in my life. And on that day, the Lord asked me, he, uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit led me to Genesis chapter 12, where the, call of, uh, where the call of God went to Abraham, who later became Abraham. And, uh, and, and it says, are you willing to leave your household, your father's house, and your country, and, and your place where you come from, and you follow me? And that day, I decided to give my life to Jesus on full-time missions. And I said, yes, Lord, I'll follow you whatever, wherever you take me to. And that journey, my dear friend, has led me. And one, one purpose, I found my identity in Christ. I, find, I, I found my destiny in him. And I found my dignity in him. When I came to the Lord, uh, 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 he led me to say, there are so many hundreds, thousands of people like me who do not have hope. And on that day, I realized the Lord was calling me to go and share the gospel into the nations. And he said, I'm going to take you to the nations. At that time, I laughed, I believe, because with my Indian passport, with where, I'm, where I was economically, I could not even dream that I'll be standing here, living here with my family in one of the most expensive cities, not only in America, but in the world. But the Lord has led me and my family into a journey of filled with hope, trusting in him, taking the gospel behind India from the villages, from the slums in India to Amsterdam, to Europe, where we worked in the red light district. Again, another expensive place in, in Europe. And the Lord has led us and my family into this nation. And my first introduction was to the tenderloin. And, and now I'm here serving my Lord Jesus Christ. And in, in, in all these things, there was a purpose in following God. There's a meaning in following God. In 1 Corinthians 9:16, it says, I'm compelled to preach Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This was Paul who was writing. And I took that as my mandate. I said, woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. I am compelled to preach. People ask me, why do you do this? I said, because I am compelled by the love of God to do what I am doing. And concluding, I like to read from Philippians 3.8. He says, I consider all those a loss because of the, uh, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. For whose I, lo I lost all things. For whose sake I lost all things. I consider garbage that I may gain Christ in my life. And this is where I, I'm like, I'm sorry, Lord, I will follow you 
to the rest of my life because I want to share the gospel. I want to share what you did in my life so that people can, can, uh, can know the same hope, same future. They can find their identity. They can find their dignity and they can find their destiny in you. So I, I, I want to thank the Lord for Jesus Christ for giving me this opportunity and the word of God is the key to where I am right now today. Thank you. Thank you, brother. You have been invited to the greatest rescue mission in the world, the most exciting rescue mission in the world. I cannot promise that you're gonna get taken to nations. I can't promise that you're gonna stand in front of world leaders like Paul did, but I can promise you that Jesus is gonna take you across the street. He's gonna take you across the office. He's gonna take you across the dinner table with your family. And for some of you, he's going to take you around the nations. We make disciples because Jesus is worth it because he's transferring people from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his son. I don't know what God is going to call you to, but the question for you is very simple today. Are you trusting and obeying what Jesus has called you to do right now? Are you making disciples right now where you are? Are you amazed by your story of salvation or have you forgotten about the darkness?